Chapter Three of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Where had Meldrum been? The ball was not a success. Lady Ursula, always so gracious a hostess, was abstracted and nervous. Her brother's chilling remoteness of manner had never been more noticeable. Lady Pevensey remained in her room, nursing a sick headache, while Lord Meldrum had suddenly been called to the city, though the time of his departure and the reason for it formed another of the mysteries that troubled Mr. Clavering. He was simply gone, and would be back before the ball ended. That was all the explanation Lady Ursula vouchsafed. That it did not satisfy her brother was apparent, and Mr. Clavering suspected that politics, in which the Earl of Portstead and Meldrum held radically different opinions, were at the bottom of this sudden absence. Mr. Clavering was one of those who did not believe that Portstead's impending trip to Egypt was solely for pleasure. Portstead had never been one to set aside time for pleasure. Work, untiring and ceaseless, was his principle of life, and he had an open contempt for those who thought otherwise. Nothing short of a complete breakdown had sent him to the manor for a few days' rest before sailing. Mr. Clavering knew that Meldrum looked with little favor on Portstead's Egyptian trip, and if it were the government matter he believed it to be, Meldrum would naturally oppose it. The fact that Portstead had brought his secretary to the manor and intended taking him to Egypt strengthened Mr. Clavering's belief. Moreover, he noticed that the cold politeness with which Portstead and Meldrum treated one another when they were brought together socially was now verging on open hostility. There seemed also a growing breach between Portstead and his sister— the Earl had always frowned on her friendship with Meldrum, who had frankly been in love with her for years. She was generally believed to return his affection, and the only apparent obstacle to their marriage was Portstead's opposition. Lady Ursula had long been strangely submissive to her brother's wishes, though as a girl she had been too high-spirited to brook restraint even from her father, who had died while she was travelling on the continent without expressing a wish that his only daughter should come to his bedside. A hard old man had the late Earl been, and his heir was singularly like him in his cold and rigid morality, which made him so severe a judge of the faults of others, notably those of his brother, Robert Sylvester, who had been going the pace for some years now. Altogether the heir of the manor was charged with unpleasantness which affected everyone, and the ball ended early to the relief of all. Meldrum had not yet returned. Lady Pevensey, in a very despondent mood, came downstairs with Mary Grey when the last guest had departed. Portstead called a sort of court of inquiry in the somber great library to determine the best means of recovering the necklace. He strongly advised telegraphing to Scotland Yard for a detective, and expressed surprise and disapproval that it had not already been done. Mr. Clavering felt highly indignant at this advice. Portstead evidently did not in the least appreciate his efforts or have faith in his ability. Mr. Clavering had never been drawn to Portstead. The Earl had always let him clearly understand that he regarded his life of bachelor ease on a comfortable income as a mere butterfly existence, without aim or excuse for being. While Lady Pevensey was appealing to Lady Ursula as to whether she should or should not send to Scotland Yard, Mary Grey unexpectedly spoke a word in Mr. Clavering's favor. Why should Lady Pevensey need a detective when Mr. Clavering is here and trying his utmost to recover the necklace? 
Do you not agree with me, Lady Pevensey? She looked at her earnestly as she spoke. Why, why, yes, of course, Lady Pevensey answered flurriedly. Flattered though Mr. Clavering was, he yet had enough of the true detective in him to watch how the others received Mary Gray's unsolicited and rather officious advice. Lady Ursula showed barely concealed relief, and her brother, after a quick glance had passed between them, something approaching the same, while Lady Pevensey, usually with such positive ideas of her own, received it with unquestioning submissiveness. It would almost seem that Mary Gray had some secret hold over her, for once before, earlier in the evening, Mr. Clavering had observed the girl override her opinions in highly authoritative manner. "'If I were you, Aunt Louisa,' spoke up pretty, fair-haired Elsie Baring, who had once been reportedly engaged to Robert Sylvester, "'I should send for that woman detective, Mercedes Quero. All London is talking about her since the Dexter case. I am sure that Mr. Clavering,' she added mischievously, "'would not mind working in conjunction with her.' "'Not at all,' he replied rather stiffly. "'If Lady Pevensey thinks it advisable to send for her.' Lady Pevensey opened her mouth as though to say something, but catching Mary Gray's eye, preserved silence. "'I have no confidence in a woman detective,' remarked Lord Portstead in his decisive manner. "'Women are not at all suited to detective work. They are illogical and carried away by sentiment.' "'Pray spare us an enumeration of women's failings, Cecil,' interrupted Lady Ursula wearily. Portstead transfixed her with his cold gray eye. You, Ursula, have frequently proven the truth of my criticism of women. Lady Ursula, flushing angrily, precipitately left the room, muttering something under her breath. Ungenerous, it sounded like to Mr. Clavering. Come, Mr. Clavering, can you not defend us poor women? exclaimed Mrs. Neville West, shaking her fan reprovingly at Lord Portstead, who stood looking after his sister with grimly set face. "'I could do nothing other than defend you, my dear madam,' he returned, with a hint of early Victorian gallantry, "'because I know nothing but good of you.' But neither this nor Mrs. Neville West's sallies could remove the constraint Portstead had caused, and all, save Mr. Clavering, were glad to escape to their rooms. He was too full of clues to think of sleep. Sitting down in the library, he went over what he had in hand. He eliminated from his list of suspects all the servants, save the runaway, Rose. The butler had been gone several hours before the necklace had even been brought into the house, so he need not be considered. It was a thing impossible to suspect any of his fellow guests, all people of the best standing. Lady Pevensey's nephew and niece, Walter and Elsie Baring, Colonel Darrell, a hero of the first Egyptian campaign, and his wife, Mrs. Neville West, and her ward, Beatrice Nolis. Sir Gerald Leslie, an admirer of Elsie Baring, and Lord Meldrum. Strange what had sent Lord Meldrum away in such haste. Meldrum, ridiculous. Politics, of course. But politics or not, he was an unconscionably long time in returning. Now that Mr. Clavering thought of it, he remembered to have heard the whistle of the last train from the city a good hour ago. Where was Meldrum? Unable to answer this question, and angered by the persistence with which it recurred to his mind, he fixed his thoughts on Mary Gray. Mary Gray with the elusive eyes and mocking smile. If she had picked up the torn note as he believed, she had done so with deliberate purpose. What that purpose was, it was for him to find out. From Mary Gray his thoughts wandered to Lady Ursula's missing maid. He had gone to no little pains in questioning the servants in regard to her, 
but had learned little save that rose whom he remembered as an extremely pretty girl with light hair was not a favorite with the other servants especially the women who pronounced her a designing minx and declared that she gave herself the airs of a lady the servants were divided in opinion as to whether she had taken the necklace the consensus of opinion seeming to be that she had simply left the manor in order to join some mysterious lover who according to her own accounts had promised to make her a lady but when mr clavering pressed for particulars concerning this man the servants one and all became singularly uncommunicative either they did not know who he was or for some reason were unwilling to tell mr clavering judged the latter supposition to be the case at all events rose's flight had evidently been premeditated for a search through her room revealed the fact that she had taken with her a travelling bag and clothing none of the servants could give any clue as to when she had gone or where she would be likely to go while mr clavering was puzzling over his vague suspicions he heard a cautious fumbling at the garden door he turned quickly in his chair a tall magnificently proportioned fair-haired man was entering meldrum he cried rising to his feet the lights were burning low in the library and the newcomer had not at first seen mr clavering who had been sitting with his back to the garden door sunk in the depths of a big morocco chair but as the light from the candelabra under which he stood revealed his short somewhat rotund figure almost bald head and round freshly colored face surprise and more dismay showed itself on meldrum's handsome countenance he made an effort to recover himself why hello clavering he said in his hearty voice what keeps you up so late mr clavering's ugly suspicion grew why must meldrum come creeping in like a nonsense he indignantly rejected the thought oh we all feel greatly concerned over the theft of lady pevensey's necklace he answered as easily as he could but watched the effect of his words on meldrum i was sitting here having a quiet uh cogitation has lady pevensey sent yet to scotland yard asked meldrum with concern not yet replied mr clavering guardedly he did not like this question coming so abruptly from meldrum i thought you had missed the last train he remarked i heard it over an hour ago the last train repeated meldrum vaguely a quick flush covered his whole face this blond giant typical of his race looked then for all the world like a guilty schoolboy oh i caught it he said hurriedly i walked from the station there was no carriage it's a er, longish walk uh, especially at night he finished lamely lord meldrum was not good at lying he was as conscious of the fact as mr clavering he paused one foot on the stairs coming up clavering when i am through my uh, cogitation meldrum smiled showing two rows of perfect white teeth his smile gave him an almost boyish appearance don't overtax your cogitating apparatus clavering old fellow he said affectionately good night mr sherlock holmes mr clavering sat staring after him he said that he had walked from the station but the road from the station was dry and dusty meldrum's boots were covered with boggy mud where could he have been End of chapter three